Okay, so what we're going to do tonight is we are going to take a look at James chapter one. And initially I thought, hey, we can cover the chapter. And as I got into it uh, this past week, I thought there's no way I can cover this whole chapter. So I kind of backpedaled a little bit and we're going to take a look at verses two through 12 of chapter one. And the first thing I want to do is read that passage. And then uh, I want to use the first slide as kind of an overall summary of that particular section. Then we'll break it down. We have uh, an interesting topic that we're going to touch upon. And this particular topic is, um, relates to faith and doubt. And we'll find that as, and look for it as I read this paragraph for you. So beginning in verse 2 of James chapter 1, James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossom, uh, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, I don't know what you felt as I was reading that paragraph, but there's a few things there that probably should have jumped out at you in regard to uh, believing, doubting, um, asking God for certain things. Um, and then there should be a little bit of inquisitiveness in terms of well, if I doubt, does that mean that God doesn't answer what I'm asking him for and so forth? So we're going to get into that. But I want us to think tonight a little bit about the nature and source of community wisdom. If you look at verse five, the first thing that you're going to notice, it says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and God will give to that individual uh, without finding fault. And so when we think of this, we often think of it in terms of individual request, in terms of what it means to, as an individual, pray to God, ask for God's blessing, ask for uh, God to come and, uh, and meet us and answer our needs, that type of thing. Um, there's a little bit more that's going on here, I think, and this part of James becomes an introduction uh, to some things that he's going to talk a little bit later on. But if I could summarize this particular paragraph, I would summarize it as a group of people seeking uh, God's wisdom 
in the midst of their trial as a community, not just as individuals. So when we often think of trials, we think of either just me or my immediate family. I want us to think about the fact that verse one says, these are to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. It seems as though there's a big view here in mind that uh, those that have chosen to follow Christ are gonna run into difficulties. And that's gonna be true, not just of pockets of people, but it will be true to the greater community called the body of Christ. So in this section, uh, there is a vision that James is giving. And this vision is amid all kinds of various trials. And uh, we don't know exactly what he has in mind, but it seems to be kind of a, a pretty big category that we could say uh, a lot of different things could fall under that heading. Uh, it might be personal problems or personal health, or it could be something that's related to the public uh, intersection of faith versus uh, the trials, persecutions, and things that might come along with being a follower of Christ. So these experiences ultimately test our faith in God. And it's interesting, though, the way James begins this. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So somehow, Joy is still a possibility in the midst of these circumstances, um, and it seems to have a result, and that is, as we go through it, it matures our faith, and um, it's there that it has this ability to deepen our roots uh, that he calls perseverance. Uh, in other words, uh, a lot of times we want to give up, but as we go through trials, it deepens the roots of our faith to where, to where we can persevere through it. And that perseverance brings about a maturing as long as we ask God for wisdom along the way. So you'll notice on your handout there, uh, point number one is the community of believers enjoy this provision of wisdom. And um, we should be anxious to ask God for wisdom because he does not find fault in us asking for wisdom. And so if you look at the last point on the slide that you're looking at here, I think the way to kind of summarize the paragraph that we just read is by having the proper attitude and asking God for wisdom, we can endure the trials of life, which are designed to bring us into maturity. And, um, I think that kind of summarizes where James begins. And one of the things that he'll do is he'll pick back up on these themes a little bit later in the book. But for now, he introduces this concept of trials. And I think he's appealing to the community at large, not just to an individual. And uh, in the midst of the trials, there is the temptation to doubt. And so we need to understand what that's all about as well. So that's just kind of a, a way to get into this part. And um, now I'd like to kind of take a look at the text in context. Now, what I mean by that is in the New Testament, it seems as though maturity and suffering is a common theme. And when you look at these cross-references, and we won't, 
uh, tonight, but if you wanted to take the time to look at Romans and 2 Corinthians, Philippians, and 1 Peter, one of the things that you will find is that uh, Paul and Peter and James all seem to have this same perspective that when we go through trials, when we encounter those things, it is those things that deepen our roots and uh, makes us more mature, and hopefully it makes us more like Christ as well. So true faith, wisdom, uh, those type of things are, are all a part of this journey that we're on as a community together. It's not just as individuals. And I think that's important to keep in mind because so much of the New Testament talks about things like rejoicing with those who rejoice, you know, having sorrow for those who are going through sorrow. In other words, we need each other in this fabric of a community setting because we collectively bring wisdom into those moments as we learn through the course of life and in the lessons of life, we have the ability to share our story. So uh, that's a, a way to get into this is, do you have any questions or comments at this point? All right, so let's come back to verses two through 12. Now, when you read a paragraph like this in English, it's hard to detect sometimes what the emphasis is on. And there is in this section an emphasis uh, through five imperatives. So um, these are commandments that are being given. It's recognized in the Greek language through imperative uh, type of uh, command structures in the language. And here's, here's how it breaks down. So the first command or imperative here is consider it. Consider it pure joy when you face trials. So there's an act of contemplating our trials, uh, thinking about it, ruminating on it, that type of thing. The second command is let perseverance finish its work. So the commandment is let it complete what it's designed to do. And that is deepen our, um, our uh, maturity. Third commandment is ask. So consider, finish, ask God for wisdom. And, um, and that's pretty self-explanatory, but we'll come back to think a little bit about what type of wisdom is James talking about here. And then the next command is do not expect that. Now this one will trip us up a little bit. Do not expect to receive anything if you doubt in verses seven and eight. And then the last commandment is take pride in your high position. So if, if we looked at this paragraph, there are five commandments, consider, finish, ask, do not expect and take pride. So that's kind of the way I'm going to uh, outline this as we consider each of these verses in chapter one. So the first thing we want to talk about is consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy. So this is a common word that um, is found in various places in the New Testament. Um, the word consider has the idea of being conscious, making a rational choice, um, being deliberate about thinking through a situation, that type of thing. 
But in this context, what is to be considered is the trials. And that is consider it pure joy. Pure joy for what? Whenever you face trials of many kinds. So now that's kind of counterintuitive. And what I mean by that is when we go through trials, uh, the last thing that we sit down to do is to consider the positive side of it, right? We usually just kind of want to get out from under the circumstances, and we never really deliberate on it a whole lot um, because it's counterintuitive. It hurts, and because it hurts, we ask God for us to get out of it. And so you'll notice in your notes there, um, this counterintuitive thing of considering it with great joy uh, that you're going through a trial can be something that takes uh, a lot of deliberation. And I think we don't do it very well because there's other emotions that get in the way. And I've listed just a couple of them here. Sometimes fear, discouragement, anger, um, all these type of things are more natural, jealousy, envy, uh, bitterness, um, you know, all those type of things can get in the way. And yet James is saying, choose to include joy in part of how you're thinking through your situations. So the word for trials here can include a variety of things. And it, it, and it says here, when you face trials of many kinds. So I thought, well, how do trials look? It seems as though that trials and tribulations come from without. It's circumstantial. A lot of trouble and temptation comes from within uh, because of the way we act or react in any given situation. So perspective, though, uh, comes when we begin to perceive the outcome at the end of the trial, whenever that may be, that there is some type of value that comes out of it that will benefit us beyond that particular moment. So I don't know if you have thought through some of the things you've gone through in life. And when you look back on it, there's been a lesson that has been learned or there has been some wisdom uh, that couldn't have come about in any other way, that type of thing. Um, let's just take the example that we just gave as part of our, uh, our boys. So they sold their house and the one that they were buying fell through. Well, what good can come out of that? It might not, we might not know until later that it was, you know, better that they had to, they were forced to find a different place to live because who knows what might come out of the particular one that they were intending to buy. And um, maybe some headaches are being spared in the process, even though it's a huge headache right now. So it's those type of things I think we look back on that we get perspective on, but we don't have the ability to see it right away. And that's why we need to ask God for wisdom a lot of times, because we can only kind of see what's right in front of us. And um, I think many times in life, the way we make choices or the way we react 
is often by looking through a small window and not opening the door and being able to see the bigger, the bigger horizon. So um, do you have any thoughts about that? Consider it all joy when you go through various trials. Um, as far as I, I feel intuitively, God could have left that out of the Bible and I'd be okay with it, you know, because it, it doesn't come naturally. It's not intuitive at all. Any thoughts there, comments? Again, remember this is an early writing. So um, this is long before there's real intense physical persecution against the church. So some of the trials, some of the troubles might be, when we go back to last week about the introduction of this book, might be troubles within the church some of the division, some of the schism that called for that Jerusalem council that they had to solve some things. Um, so that's something to keep, excuse me, in mind as well, that the trial that James has in mind might not necessarily be facing martyrdom at this point in the first century. It might be other type of things. And maybe that's one of the things to keep in mind as to why he wrote what he wrote. Um, he might've had a, dip, a little bit different opinion later, another 10 years down the line as, as persecution begins to heat up against the early church. So any thoughts or questions that you might have? So the next commandment is let perseverance finish its work. Well, what is the work? So here we are introduced to the word maturity. You'll notice beginning in verse four here, it says perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So the word for maturity here is kind of interesting. It kind of means without defect. And I don't think it has any idea of sinlessness or perfection or complete sanctification or whatever way you want to describe it. I think it has to do with the idea of, um, of, of maturing to the place that um, a person is complete in the process of what they are facing. They're, they have the adequate resources that they need to go through a situation and come out the other side. So a lot of times we might assume that uh, maturity is having no doubts because he's going to introduce this word doubt in verse six. Um, and what happens here, I think, is a failure to remember the stories themselves. And what I mean by that is many of the stories of the Old Testament and the way many of those characters come to maturity is not only through their faith, but sometimes their shortcomings as well. So you have Abraham, great man of faith, justified by faith, sets out from Ur of the Chaldees. He goes toward a land that God's going to show him, but he lies twice about his wife, Sarah, to some of the foreign leaders that want to bring her into their harem. So it, it's far from being without defect or perfection, but faith as seems to grow. And I, I, if you look at just the book of James, what you're going to find is James going to come back to 
this idea of faith and give to us later in the book uh, some characters to look back at. So in chapter two, he'll talk about Abraham and Rahab. In chapter five, he'll talk about Job. And in chapter five, he'll talk about Elijah. So you have four characters from the Old Testament that he's going to talk about later that uh, is a illustration of what faith looks like. And none of these individuals are perfect. I mean, Rahab's a prostitute. Uh, Job uh, wants to put God on trial, wants to take him to court. Um, You know, Elijah is an individual that has his moments of doubt and he runs from Jezebel. I mean, there's you know, each has kind of a a darker shade to their life, and it's told in the scriptures as well. We'll talk about them when we get to that section of the book of James. So maybe maturity that James has in mind has this idea of virtue that builds and strengthens character. And that's a common thought in the Greco-Roman world. Um, It's the idea of virtue and character is strengthened through the trials that you go through and that you come out the other side. So um, James, uh, again, seems to be thinking though, not just of virtue as individuals, but as a community of faith. And, um, And so this endurance that we need through the trials is not placed solely on the shoulders of any one individual. We're all kind of carrying that load as we are yoked together in faith and in mutual love. Some thoughts, questions, comments there? So now we come to uh, the next one, and that is, the command to ask God for wisdom in verses five and six. And it's interesting that it's set up by this idea, if anyone lacks something, if any of you lacks wisdom. So it's assumed that we don't have enough information in certain situations to be able to make good decisions. And so in those moments, as we lack wisdom, um, we should ask of God. And he's not going to find fault, it says here. Uh, so we should ask God for help without, um, without being afraid that he's going to, you know, somehow uh, condemn us that we need that type of intervention. So um, here you see on the slide, the word lacks picks up the the mention of lacking in verse four as well. Um, And um, he says, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And and he immediately turns from lacking anything to if you lack wisdom. So he almost assumes that we do lack certain things as he uses that same word there uh, in the process of maturing. So what kind of wisdom does James have in mind? Now that's, uh, that I think is um, probably at the core of what we need to understand here in this paragraph. Again, James is writing to a group that he calls the diaspora. And we said last week that this could have been Jews that had been scattered 
or he might be using the word diaspora to include both Jews and Gentiles, early believers, but they're scattered around the world, um, or at least through Asia Minor. And so he uses that word diaspora in a sense that these are people that are away from the capital city of Jerusalem, uh, that type of thing. So whatever way you go with it, um, it's interesting that um, as he thinks about wisdom, maybe one of the things that he is going to draw upon most in this early part is the idea that wisdom is the idea of living skillfully. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the context of the book of Proverbs, uh, which introduces wisdom. Actually, um, the idea of wisdom is personified in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom calls in the street. Wisdom is reaching out. Wisdom, almost like a person, is reaching out uh, to other people. And um, maybe that's the first place that we look for wisdom. If it has a connection to the book of Proverbs is how does wisdom play out in the lives of those that are recorded in the Old Testament? Well, you'll find that many times in the Old Testament, there were individuals that asked God for understanding what they're going through. And I give to you just a few examples. So Rebecca asked God why her pregnancy is so difficult. Uh, God, give to me some insight. And that's in Genesis 25, 22. David inquires of God, wanting to know what caused the famine that they were going through in 2 Samuel 21. One, Jeroboam uh, needs wisdom about whether or not his son is going to live in the story that's found in 1 Kings 14. Uh, we all know that Solomon asks for wisdom to be able to properly govern God's people. But as you fast forward into the New Testament, you see glimpses of individuals that need God to give them perspective. And maybe James th is thinking of his half-brother Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, too. So Jesus is about to face the cross. As he faces the cross, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays to God. And it's so intense that uh, one of the gospel writers says it was as if it was great drops of blood that was falling off his head. That's pretty intense sweating, okay? That Because he was going through what he uh, was gonna face. And, um, and it's there that he asked God, is there any other way that this could be accomplished besides going to the cross? And then what he does is he says, but nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. So those are just some examples of people that, needed intervention from God to, to be able to handle what they were going through. Maybe um, James is thinking of his own context. Maybe he needs wisdom because of this fraction that's going on in the early church. The Jews didn't want the Gentiles to be a part of this new work initially. Uh, many parts of the New Testament, uh, Paul and others are trying to smooth that over. In fact, probably the whole book of Romans is written as a way of trying to unify these two groups of people. Um, and uh, so there's that element maybe that James is facing as well. Uh, so what we are to hang on to though, 
is the fact that God loves to give wisdom. And we know that he loves to give it because he does not find fault. And I know many times when we know something that someone else doesn't know and they are struggling to handle it and it's simpler for us, it's so easy to look down on another person and say, well, why can't you get this? It's simple. Um, But God doesn't do that. God doesn't look down upon us. Uh, And he knows that we are needy and weak and and need uh, his intervention. So go ahead, ask God for wisdom. Thoughts there? Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so Esty says maybe one of the questions that we need wisdom on is why COVID, why is it lasted as long as it has, um, you know, what purpose is it serving? All kinds of questions that come about from that. And I'm not sure we have any answers uh, to it, but maybe we're piecing together some answers along the way. Yeah, what is my responsibility in the midst of it too? So maybe the wisdom of James is describing a wisdom that's not solely on your shoulders, but is describing a wisdom that is embodied in the community that he is seeking to establish and helping to mature. So the theme of wisdom from the ancient sages of Israel sought to educate uh, the next generation. Um, And that's what the book of Proverbs is. If you ever read the book of Proverbs, where there is a passage that talks about wisdom, um, there's also close to it, this idea of listen to wisdom, my son, my son is closely associated with it. So it's almost as if the book of Proverbs is a catechism in ancient Israel to help the next generation live well. So the Hebrew word for wisdom is chokmah, and it reflects this God-given gift to pursue insight, to navigate life well, even to negotiate life in the public square. Um, Again, think of Solomon's request for wisdom to govern well. How can we live this mutual life and how can we do it uh, well with each other? So I am going to have you turn back because wisdom is an important thing to the book of Proverbs tonight, just for a minute. And when you come to the book of Proverbs, I want you to come to chapter one, and we're going to begin reading in verse two. And it is here that the idea of wisdom is personified. It's as if wisdom is sitting in the room with us. So take a look. It says in verse one, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair. There you see, again, the public square comes into this. This is not just about me. It's about how we relate to each other. For giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. There's this idea There's a generation that's coming behind us. How do we train them? Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance 
for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And then here we are introduced to an individual who has their ears shut. And the book of Proverbs calls them fools. But look at it, verse eight. In verse eight, what did I just say? Where you see this idea of wisdom, not far behind it is this idea of my son. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Why? Because there's a certain amount of maturity and wisdom there that was learned through the grid of life circumstances. Uh, my son is repeated in verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. In other words, dip into the wisdom that you have learned from those who have come before you. And if you jump down to verse 20, notice wisdom is available. And the way it's personified is wisdom is almost like a town crier. Wisdom calls aloud in the streets. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out in the gateways of the city, and she makes her speech. This goes on in the book of Proverbs for the first nine chapters like this in the book of Proverbs. So I do think when we think about wisdom, we think about the Jewishness of James. Um, and the idea of learning and growth and maturity and passing that along, I think James is drawing heavily upon the book of Proverbs and this idea of wisdom that can be uh, learned, uh, not only from other people, but from God, because it says uh, in that very famous verse uh, seven of chapter one, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. The fools despise wisdom and discipline. So maybe we can summarize the wisdom of James like this. If God is trusted as a generous and impartial benefactor, like he says in verse five, believers will petition God for the know-how they lack in order to deal with the trials that they're facing, to be able to do it in a wise way. Any thoughts or questions? Let's go back to James chapter one. Now, we wanna spend a good portion of the rest of our Bible study with this unexpected statement. If God doesn't look down upon us asking for wisdom, if God doesn't find fault in us asking for wisdom, then why is there this statement that, well, you're not getting anything if you doubt? In other words, don't expect to receive anything if you doubt. Verse 7, that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. So when I read that, and remember, this is my first kind of deep dive into James. I told you before, I've done James in New Testament surveys, but I haven't really done a deep dive in the book. And um, these questions came to my mind. Okay, is James demanding a certainty-seeking type of faith? In other words, you're not allowed to doubt. It's a sin. Is James talking about faith, or is he talking about the request for wisdom? Um, when he talks about doubt, 
does that relate to wisdom or does that relate to faith? I think we often think of it as faith because verse six says, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Another question came up. Must believers be fully persuaded that God will answer every request for wisdom? And if God doesn't answer that request for wisdom, is it because of my lack of faith? Are believers supposed to squelch all doubt that comes up in our mind? Get thee behind me, Satan, I think. Does this make faith primarily about intellectual assent then? In other words, is faith all in the, in the mind? Because that's where doubts arise. Is faith primarily about something between the ears? Uh, if faith is primarily a psychological concept, is your faith only as strong as you are certain? Now you can see maybe um, why people struggle with certain questions. I'm not allowed to ask that. Uh, I'm not allowed to think that through because there's a lot at stake here. And if God is going to grant wisdom, how certain must you be before you answer? Do you have to be 100% certain, 80%, 50%? What's the percentage that you have to be certain if God's going to answer your request for wisdom? So all kinds of questions came flooding into my mind when I read these couple of verses. Do you have some additional questions that come up in your mind? Not so much a question, but um, ask, the person asked for Jesus to help his unbelief. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So God knows we have trouble all the time having 100% faith and belief. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. That's a great cross-reference. I do believe, but help my unbelief, uh, is mm -hmm. what uh, the individual said to G Jesus. Any other questions? I've set you up with these questions. I hope you know that. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, in this setup, I want us now to kind of think about how this passage of Scripture can be twisted. And what I mean by that is, if you believe that God will react to certainty, then it is very easy to think that anything that you lack in life, whether it's resources or health or um, good relationships, whatever it might be, is because you don't have enough faith. Now, it's not too far of a stretch then to, to think, well, if I have enough faith, then I can manipulate God to give me what I want. So, you know, all you got to do is turn the TV on and you'll, you'll find a lot of individuals that are kind of prosperity theologians or preachers or evangelists or whatever that will use this idea of, uh, if you believe, it will be given to you. So believe, and, you know, of course, usually what comes along with that is 
you got to put some seed into that uh, belief. And that means sending them some money. So it's, it's all a ruse. Okay. But in other words, a lot of times these type of uh, teachers will say, well, you have an illness, you were given a diagnosis and God wants to heal you, but he won't heal you unless you have enough faith. So this individual then is not healed, let's say. And then the fault is placed upon them because they didn't have enough faith for God to grant healing. Now, if certain levels of faith determines how much blessing God is going to give to you in this theological construct, uh, this can be used as a twisted scripture to manipulate other people, like many people are, uh, to feel guilty, feel despair because prayer wasn't answered. Um, it, they can be manipulated to financially give what they don't have to give. And a lot of times uh, that's true of older people that watch a lot of TV uh, religious uh, uh, programming is they don't get out. They don't go to the local community of people that has this pool of wisdom. And so they go, oh man, I really need God to do this or that. I better send a hundred dollars to this preacher, you know, because I need God to intervene here. I think the biggest question I have tonight of all with this is, is this an accurate portrait of God? And is it the way he really arranges the world? And if it is, what does that say about God that he holds out answers to prayer if we don't have enough certainty? In other words, are people simply like dogs that owners demand to shake before they get the treat? Okay, shake, roll over, sit down. There, here's your treat. Um, I think that's pretty unhealthy, uh, a way of looking at God. So if, why is psychological certainty such a virtue? I don't think that it necessarily is. It, I think a lot of people use it to try to leverage God and manipulate God, that type of thing. Um, but we were given a brain for a reason. And so naturally, when we think, there are many, many options to various things that we think about. And to be gullible enough to say there's only one way to look at this and you've got to be certain that that one way that you're looking at is the right way, I think is counter to the way our brain even works. And that is we take in these things and we evaluate and we contemplate and we uh, all these types of things. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a part of wisdom. So the ultimate question that you have to ask is, if that happened to be one of the ways that people looked at God in the ancient world, is that the way Jesus portrayed God? In other words, is this the kind of portrait of the character of God found in Jesus? 
And when you read the Gospels and you read about how Jesus looked at God as father, well, he would say, you know, if God cares for the lilies of the field, if he cares for the birds of the air, how much more does God care for you? How much more does God love you? So we, as we come to this text, maybe this isn't about belief in some type of doctrinal construct. Maybe this has a direct, direct relationship to wisdom itself. Let's see where that goes. So here's a, three consequences. If you think that God holds out until you have certainty, then here's what's going to happen. It will cause you to have a learning phobia. What I mean by that is if everything hangs on psychological certainty, then you want to avoid everything that could, could bring some doubt to your certainty. So you're not going to want to learn anything because you might hear some things that kind of contradicts what you currently believe. And there's a lot of Christians that are like that. You know, they've closed their mind because they think that certainty is a virtue that they have to attain to. So that makes reading and learning from other perspectives a little bit dangerous in the minds of some people. Okay. Seminaries are very famous for this. So they have their doctrinal construct and they give their students only certain textbooks to read when there's a whole world of other things out there that are to be considered, but they are never used in the classroom because you want to, you want to firm up this particular construct. Okay. So it, you could have a learning phobia. Number two, this interpretation could set people up for a fall. Uh, what I mean by that is each year that we live, there is more that, dis that is discovered about the way the world works. And, you know, science gives to us deep insight into things that people 100 years ago couldn't know. Um, that can be quite threatening to some people. And so there's kind of a bias against science and that type of thing because they're not really prepared for life in the real world. And what I mean by that is in the real world, you have this mix that you live with every day. Things that are simple, things that are complex, things that are perplexing, and some things, quite frankly, you don't have the ability to make a determination on, and you got to be humble enough to say, I don't know. I don't know. So in the, this mix, um, this interpretation of certainty can keep people locked into simplicity. And what I mean by that is, you know, I don't want to know the complexity of things. I don't want to know that there's other ways of looking at things. I just want to believe this certain way. I want to just look through my little window and believe that that's the way life works. Thirdly, certainty seeking can, can become idolatrous. And what I mean by that is no longer is God the source of our life, but all of a sudden being right 
is where we get our life. And when that happens, I, I have to be right. Then it's an idol because that's where I'm drawing my life from, not from God. So people tend to protect their idols at all costs because that's their lifeblood that's there. So when we think about this passage, it doesn't take long to get into the book of James that we go, okay, what do we do with this? And what is he trying to get at? So maybe we keep in mind the context here. James is talking about wisdom, not about faith, so you can get a new house or a new Mercedes, okay? It's not talking about, hey, you believe it, you'll get it, you know, that type of thing. The word for doubt here is diacrino, which means to separate, distinguish, or judge. In other words, you have a duplicity of ideas all the time. But in the midst of those different thoughts that we have, are we still solid enough to live a well-lived life? Or does it cause us to be tossed around, as it says here, like uh, a person being tossed about on the sea and tossed around by the wind? So there are some things that we will come across and we can't figure out. Does that destroy our confidence in God? Does that destroy our way of living life? And it shouldn't because there's always going to be new things that surface that we don't know what to do with. And that's okay. And that's why I think we go back to the commandment. Jesus says, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's the center. There's the center. Keep coming back to that. So in James, Maybe what he has in mind is this. Put this on for size here. So he says, if any of you, verse 5, lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, ask what? Well, not, not for your prayer request for a car or or even a prayer request for healing. It's the prayer for wisdom. But when he asks for wisdom, he must believe and not doubt because uh, he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. Receive what? Wisdom. That man should not think he will receive any wisdom from the Lord because he's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. In other words, Here's the way I want to put this together. Maybe what he's trying to say is we pray, God, give me wisdom, but then we go to look for answers in other places and we don't wait upon God because we really doubt that he's going to provide an answer to give to us insight in the first place. So it's not necessarily a prayer that is, okay, I'm praying for healing I've got to believe with 100% certainty that God is going to answer this prayer in a way that is favorable for what I'm praying for. And when it doesn't happen and when the prayer is not answered, then you go, well, I must not have had enough faith. Mm. Boy, that's a, boy, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. I think the context here helps us. 
And I think what the context is helping us to understand is that when you ask for wisdom, don't doubt that God wants to give to you wisdom. The key question becomes, how does he give wisdom? Well, one, it might be from his word. Another might be through other people. Another way might be through research that we need to do on our own about a particular thing to make a good choice. In other words, don't doubt that God will provide those things for you. He does his part. We do our part. So let me give to you an illustration, and then we'll stop there for tonight. We'll pick up the rest of this next Wednesday. So one of the things that I've been doing is going down to help my dad, um, and he he had to have a new water line put in into his house, and this new water line is going from uh, the tree lawn right through one side of his front yard. So they dug all this up and it's all dirt. It needs to be reseeded. And, you know, he's sitting there thinking, well, he says, you know, we're going to need to get some dirt and some seed and some straw. We need to level this out. And I go, okay, that's one approach that we could take. Um, but let's consider all the factors here. How much are we actually going to save by breaking our backs, trying to do it ourselves? Dad, you're 86 years old. I'm 64 years old. Wouldn't it be better to to look into options of having somebody come in that has the equipment, that has the know-how, that when they lay it down, the only thing you've got to do is to water it. <laughs> it yeah, it's done in one day, that type of thing. Um, so there's that difference between, you know, wisdom calls upon you to think things through and will God grant to us a connection? And I, here's where I believe God will give to us somebody, but I got to do my part. So I started making some phone calls um, to some people in Akron, you know, just looking into who could possibly come and do this because it's the right time of the year to do it. So I believe, I have faith that God's going to open a door, but I'm going to use wisdom here. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to keep trying to do what I have to do to make the connection because the better choice is not for my dad to pick up a shovel and dirt. That's not a good choice. That's not a good choice for me either. Uh, so the better choice is to do this. Now I do my part and I believe that God somehow will help direct the circumstances so I'm con I get a connection with somebody to get the job done. Does that help at all? Yeah, okay, good. So that's kind of where I, um, that's kind of where I wanna finish for tonight. And then we'll come back. Uh, I wanna, I'll come back to this just for a few minutes next week um, that faith in God is about commitment. It's not about certainty. So we'll, we'll begin there next Wednesday. If you have some thoughts or questions, 
Yeah, can I build on what you just said a little bit? Please do it. You know, in the James passage, when you're talking about faith and belief, and to believe that he has our best interests at a heart, and he may not answer our prayers the way we see, the way we want them answered. Right. You have to believe that he answers your prayers the way he sees fit, that is best for us. We may not realize that at the point in time, but down the road, quite often we see that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Yep, that's for sure. A lot of times we look back and we go, oh, man, thank you, Lord, you didn't answer that prayer. You know, because... Yeah, we had limitations in the way we were praying, right? And it wasn't till later that you had a clear, clear perspective. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. That's right. So what Mark said, because I understand on the computer here, you probably didn't hear what he said. He said, um, you know, many times in life, he, he said he's looked back on things that he really wanted or prayed for and and, and didn't come about. And, and then you look back at it and go, oh, gee, thank you, Lord, that you didn't, you know, that you didn't open that so that I walked through that door and made a mistake or a poor choice in the process. So we'll pick back. We'll pick this back up next week a little bit as because we'll finish chapter one next week. At least that's my goal. So um, any other thoughts, anything else you want to build on before we finish off for tonight? If not, um, thanks for joining us and we'll close off here and we'll see you soon. Okay. Good night, everyone. Night.